Spoiler alert! This episode of The Power of Three may contain spoilers. And that jarring cacophony tells you that, yet again, you're back with the power of three. Or is it Doctor Who and the power of three, if we were to be novelised? Be quite a few to do. Anyway, I'm Kenny Smith and I'm flying solo once again as we continue our mini-series looking at the new Doctor Who novelisations from Target Books. And today, we've reached Doctor Who's 60th anniversary special number two, Wild Blue Yonder. Originally written by Russell T. Davis for the screen, but novelised by the brilliant Mark Morris. I'm not just saying that because he's listening. He is brilliant. Very good horror writer. If you're not familiar with his non-Doctor Who work, I hugely recommend that you check it out. So today, yes, we're back. We've got three guests joining us and they'll be with us very shortly. But we're going to start off by having a quick look at what the back cover blurb of the Target edition of Wild Blue Yonder has to tell us. A ship at the edge of space. A robot with a secret. A sinister presence. The Doctor and Donna are trapped on board a mysterious spacecraft. Fate of the crew? Unknown. Fate of the universe, if what's on board gets out? Terminal. That's a good blurb. That's a very good blurb. So, we've had a little teaser about what's in the back cover. Let's now hear an excerpt from it. Read by Bonnie Langford. Isaac's head was buzzing with ideas. In fact, so many ideas were swirling around in there that his skull felt like a wasp's nest. He had sat at his desk long into the night. The manuscript on which he was feverishly working lit only by the flame of a dwindling candle. By the time he laid his quill aside, wax was pooling on the desk's wooden surface. But Isaac knew that if he had stopped to stem the flow... The delay might well have stemmed his flow of ideas too, and that would never have done. In the event he had completed his paper, De Analisi per Aequationis Numero Terminorum Infinitas, a snappy title if ever there was one, at a little after 3am, whereupon he had collapsed into bed, exhausted but content. Now the summer's day was rewarding him with bright sunshine, piercingly blue skies and clouds that were dabs of the purest white. Exiting the main door of Woolsthorpe Manor, his family home in the Lincolnshire hamlet of Woolsthorpe by Colstworth, Isaac almost collided with the housekeeper, Mrs Meridew, who was sweeping the front step. Plump and red-cheeked, Mrs Meridew stepped back, beaming at Isaac. "'Tis a glorious day, sir,' she declared. Isaac beamed back at her. England at its finest. I think perhaps I shall hie me to yonder apple tree, there to contemplate the mysteries of God's universe. Mrs. Meridew wagged a finger at him. Well, don't come back till you've had a very good idea, sir. I shan't, Isaac said, laughing. Good day, Mrs. Meridew. <laughs> 
The apple tree was a huge and ancient thing. Its branches erupted from the thick, gnarled trunk and twined every which way like a thousand petrified tentacles. It was, without doubt, the matriarch of the orchard, and Isaac had felt secure beneath its branches ever since he was a boy. He sat now on the warm ground, his back against the rough bark, dappled sunlight playing across his face and shoulders. The air was full of birdsong, and a pair of red admirals skittered erratically by. It really was the most glorious day. Any other young man in such bucolic surroundings, particularly one who had been up half the night working, might have allowed himself the luxury of a summer doze, but not Isaac. Even now, he could feel new ideas clamouring in his skull, eager for release. He withdrew his quill, a small pot of ink, and a roll of parchment from his jacket pocket. And then... Ow! An apple bounced off his head. Ruefully, Isaac rubbed the sore spot on his skull, but as he looked at the offending piece of fruit on the ground beside him, he felt a rising sense of epiphany. He reached out and picked up the apple. Of course, Isaac breathed. New and ever more exciting ideas forming in his mind, he gripped the apple harder and stared at the branches above him. But before he could transfer his thoughts from brain to parchment, the piece of the day was shattered by a monstrous cacophony of noise, like the bellowing screech of a thousand crazed harpies. An instant later, a hellish wind sprang up out of nowhere, and Isaac looked wildly around, certain that the world was about to split in two. With horror, he saw that away to his left, a large dark shape, a crate or a box of some sort, was spinning wildly through the air towards him. The box swooped and dipped as it hurtled in his direction, and then, whoomph, it crashed into the apple tree. Shaken loose by the impact, dozens of apples rained down from the tree around Isaac. Some bounced off his head and shoulders as he leaped to his feet and spun round to fully take in the astonishing spectacle before him. The box, tall and blue and seemingly made of wood, was nestled in the branches of the tree some ten feet above his head, tilted over at an obtuse angle. Alarmingly, it was straining and groaning and shuddering like some injured bird. Odds bodkins, Isaac muttered. What the devil? And then the lid of the box, clearly a door of some sort, flew open. Black smoke boiled out in a cloud, and then not one but two people popped up from the box and looked down at Isaac. Thanks for that, Bonnie. And of course, if you're interested, you can buy the talking book version, which is published by BBC Audiobooks, and you can purchase it as a physical copy on CDs, or you can buy it for digital download. And thanks to Michael Stevens and BBC Audio for their sample. So, let's hear more about the process for creating this book. Hi, I'm Steve Cole. I am the editor of the Target Novelizations. Then, of course, you've got the joy of working with Mark Morris once again. Again, somebody you'd worked with early doors um, yes. back in the 90s. And That's great. great fun with uh, what he was able to bring. Obviously, he couldn't expand too much to keep the mystery there, but still such a damn good read and just making it feel really jittery. 
Yes, and I had I had concerns about how Wild Yonder would work as a novelization, because of course you have no side plots, you have no additional cast beyond the two not things. You, you know, there's not many other <laughs> other speaking parts going on, so you can't cut away to the action. And if you do cut away to the action, you kind of give away that that wonderfully eerie reveal in the episode where the person Donna's talking to clearly isn't the Doctor and the person the Doctor's talking to clearly isn't Donna. It's tricky to do in prose. But um, I think the team in Cardiff knew that, uh, that Mark is obviously his, his pedigree is writing horror. He was um, well suited to the uh, the eeriness of this. And I think it's the, uh, the strongest work uh, he's done in Doctor Who. I think is absolutely brilliant. Um, I was concerned that the uh, the word count would have to be lower. I think um, I met up with um, with Gary and Mark together for a dinner up in Derby when we were doing a convention there, and Gary was saying that his novel was running to thirty eight thousand words, and uh, I think Mark's was uh, running to over ten thousand less than that. <laughs> I was concerned. I said, "No, it's okay because we've got special dispensation for that, Mark, because yours is obviously a shorter, tighter story. You, you can't really uh, take it in other directions." We had a early. We, Early on, we considered doing something from the uh, the horsey pilot's point of view, maybe some sort of flashback sequence. But it was felt that that would that would um, lessen the mystery and and you know, want to keep the focus very firmly on the the Doctor and Donna and what is an absolute nightmare for them. Um, and you know, what an episode, what a book! I was very very pleased with that. That's brilliant, Steve. Thank you very much. So let's do it again tomorrow, shall we? And discuss the giggle. Thanks, Kenny. Cheers. Many thanks, Steve, a man who certainly knows all about making books, given that he's been involved with Doctor Who books since 1997, off and on, but these days a lot more on than off. So let's move on and have a chat with the man who wrote this novelisation, my mate, the brilliant Mr Mark Morris. Ooh, alliteration. Yes, hello, my name is Mark Morris. Um, I have recently written the uh, official BBC Target Books novelisation of Doctor Who Wild Blue Yonder. First question first, Mark. What was the first Target book you got? First Target book um, was The Autumn Invasion. And and the fantastic thing about it is that I bought it on the 11th of January 1975. And my book has just come out on the 11th of January 2024. So... 49 years to the day as, as people keep saying to me oh it wouldn't have been nice if it had been 50 years to the day but you know i'm happy with 49 years to the day yes and i remember it very very clearly the reason i know it, it was that day is because i used to write obsessively write the dates in all my books of when i got them and my name and address and all that kind of thing and um and so i still i still have that copy i still have the copy of the auton invasion and i still clearly remember the circumstances of buying it because I had no idea that Doctor Who books existed at that point and I was reading um, I don't know if you've ever read them or know of them but I was reading Jennings books by Anthony Bookridge at the time and I used to love the Jennings books they were very funny uh, about a couple of schoolboys in a in a, um, a boarding school and you know had great fun and I went out with my dad one morning fully intending to buy another Jennings book and we went to uh, we went to a, just a little post office um, my dad was obviously posting something and they had a book spinner so while he was queuing up I, I was just browsing the book spinner 
and I noticed they had two Doctor Who books on the book spinner and I was amazed because I, I just didn't know these things existed. So they had the Auton Invasion and they had Day of the Daleks and I was just attracted by the big tentacled monster on the front and I didn't read the back or anything. I was just attracted by the big tentacled monster. I thought, I'm going to get that one because I, I remembered the Dalek story from TV and I wanted something I hadn't, I couldn't really remember. So I bought the Auton Invasion and then I remember on the way home taking it from its brown paper bag reading the back of it and realising that it was the the story about the Auton the story about the plastic mannequins coming to life which had traumatised me as a seven year old four years earlier so I, I just remember reading the book in the back of the car and just just getting this kind of bodily sort of thrill of, of fear this kind of freeze on of oh my god this is the story that terrified me for you know when I was seven so I was yeah hooked from then on too blooming right that's amazing I love that I absolutely love that so suppose that you got a surprise when you found the book in the post office I suppose you probably got a bigger surprise when you got the email saying Psst, would you be interested in doing something so how did that all come about because yeah not, there was I mean I was amazed you know that when it came out that these were all being novelized after novel experiences and obviously you and Gary had been there and not a clue. yeah we knew and we weren't allowed to say anything <laughs> yeah yeah it was um uh, it was, I think, last... What, what are we on now? 2024. So it was November 2022, I think. I got a call from... No, I got a... I think I just got a, a message on Twitter, actually, back when I was on Twitter, before my, my account was hacked. Um, yeah, I was... Uh, so, so I was on Twitter, and I just got a message from um, Steve Cole saying, can you get into... Can you give me a call or something? And immediately I just thought, ooh... This could be exciting because you know because obviously I knew Steve was involved with Doctor Who, and I'd I'd already said to him I sent him an email saying if you're ever looking for people to write target books, you know I'm your man kind of thing, and I knew that Stephen Moffat and Russell T Davies's stuff they wouldn't keep writing their own stuff, so I was kind of told that they would possibly be up for grabs, and I, so I said to Steve you know obviously. I'd be happy to write something creepy like Blink or Empty Child or something like that. So if there's ever a chance. So I got this message from him, rang him back, um, and then it just went from there, really. He just kind of offered me the the gig. And, of course, I said yes straight away. But he didn't offer you the giggle. He didn't offer me the giggle. He just offered me the gig. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, field stand-up comedian. I used to support <laughs> Frankie Boyle. And uh, <laughs> oh, one of us did all right, one of us didn't, and they caught me mistakes. But uh, at least I have my morals. And, uh, yeah, that must have been such an excitement. So I'd imagine that it would be a case of getting uh, to see an awful lot of green screen work when you sort of were shown what had been done. Yeah, it was more... Um, it was more kind of basic computer graphics than green screen when I saw it um, so you could kind of see what was happening but it was it was um, it, they were kind of actually I saw the first one as well I saw the one uh, the Star Beast and if you can imagine there were scenes where obviously the meat was was physically there in, in quite a lot of cases but there's scenes towards the end when it's you know it's sitting up on its pedestal and it's its face is becoming all evil and everything when it was CGI and I had if you can imagine a kind of a um, uh, an action figure that's just plain grey that doesn't really move. That's the that's the image of the meat I saw. So it was kind of positioned where the meat will you know would be in the in the series in the story. But um, 
but it wasn't you know it, it, it was wasn't realized as it as it was later on screen obviously so it was a lot of that kind of thing and um uh, for instance in wild blue yonder when the walls are changing you know they're flipping over they're changing shape didn't really see much of that at all there was just an impression of that and also when the doctor and donna are being chased down the corridor by the huge distorted versions of themselves again that was just very very, very sort of basic computer graphics um so most of uh, you know most of that came from for me came from russell's script and i kind of extrapolated on, on what was in the script there so how was it working from of course you'd seen it and then you'd have a script to work from as well yeah it was kind of the the basic thing which is uh, i've done quite a lot of uh, movie novelizations and things in the past um i got the one you know the one viewing um which was early last uh, last year i think it was if in fact it was actually january the 5th i think so i'd, I'd actually been up in scotland i've been up in the highlands of scotland with my wife because it was she had a big birthday and we had a big group of people so i drove all the way back from the highlands of scotland back down to tadcaster near york on january the 4th when we came home and then first thing on the 5th uh, so we got back late at night well at evening january the 4th slept in my own bed for one night and then jumped in the car the next morning and drove to cardiff stayed over in cardiff and then went into the studios the following morning and uh, watched the episodes or watched the two ep- first two episodes um and that was it i was just literally in there said hello to a few people was shown into an office um with a you know a couple of people in there as well and um and just sat and watched the episode made notes and came away and went and drove home that was it you know and then after that it was um so i'd seen the episode um i had my notes i had little sketches of the robot and all that kind of thing which i'd done because i I was able to sort of say at times can can you just freeze this can you pause this a moment and i was able to just kind of sketch little things just to give myself a visual uh, memory of what things look like went home then got the scripts i think the, the next week sometime next few days read the script and then just kind of worked from the script and my memories and if there was anything that i couldn't remember i really couldn't remember and it was usually it's usually kind of technical things like the layouts of rooms and stuff like that because quite often you're focusing on the actors and you're and what they're saying not really noticing you know or only kind of peripherally noticing the surroundings so in those cases i would just send them send scott or somebody a quick email and say can you just send me a picture of that room or can you send me a picture of, of that like the pilot seat or something or where the screens are on this thing uh and usually they would just be able to find a, a still and just send that along to me so that i could use that um so that yeah that was how i did it the rest of it i just sort of made up from russell's script you know went by russell's script how much freedom did you have in terms of you know adaptations and adding explanations and things because an awful lot of it is still kept quite vague in the book there's extra detail yeah. but not the full explanation, the full shebang. With, with mine, not so much. I don't know how much um, uh, Gary and James have had, but with mine, because it was a ve- because it's a very tight story and it's a mystery, so they didn't want you know they didn't want a lot of information to to kind of leak out, if you like. It has to follow that linear sense of the story unfolding as the epi- you know as the story unfolded in the episode. And also, I don't think, I think Russell really wanted to keep it vague as to why the ship was there, who the alien race were that occupied it, what happened to the rest of the crew. I don't think he wanted lots of explanation. So I don't, you know, there was no kind of flashbacks to 
to the the race the, to the alien race fighting the creatures before the Doctor and Donna did and all that kind of thing. A because it had to unfold in that way, and B because I think Russell wanted to keep it kind of mysterious and and vague. And I think it works much better that way. I think it's one of those stories where if you over-explain things, it kind of kills it. I think it's much better if it just sort of unfolds and it's a lot of it stays a mystery, you know. So we never do find out what happened to the rest of the crew or anything like that. But I, I kind of like that. I think it would, I think it would spoil it if you kind of got too many answers. So, so to answer your question, it was basically just stick to the script, pretty much. Um, and there wasn't much embellishment either way. Even a couple of things I wanted to mention, because obviously in the story, there's a thing about it being like on the very, very edge of the known universe and there's no stars and on the doc saying he's never been that far before. And I immediately thought, well, what about Planet of Evil when he's on the very edge of the universe and, you know, so close to the edge of the universe that it meets the antimatter universe? And so I kind of wanted to, I said, is it okay if I just kind of just drop a little mention of something like Zeta Minor where the doctors could say, say something like you know I haven't been this far out since I went to Zeta Minor kind of thing or something like or, or he could say oh this is even further out than Zeta Minor or something and, and Russell wasn't there to question about this I have to say this didn't come from Russell but I was told no I think you just better stick to the script on this because Russell wants to keep it very very tight so yeah so I couldn't do that <laughs> it's a story I think that when you know, when you see the list of people who were chosen to novelise each one and your name makes perfect sense for this one given that mm. there is something really quite dark and horrific about it. We never quite find out exactly what it is but it very much plays to your strengths and did you feel that that was a maybe one of the reasons why you were offered this one? Yeah definitely I think um, I, I was told that Russell selected me. Um, I think from a list of people that Steve sent to him, Steve sort of said you know I think these people might be good for doing this and, and I was told Russell kind of selected me out of all that so I mean very much so I, I would love to do if I get a chance to do another and I get asked what I would like to do I'd like to do the creepy one so I'd love to do things like the empty child silence in the library you know the weeping angel stuff because that's really kind of what I am drawn to is the scariness and that's the thing that that first drew me to Doctor Who was when I was four it was the it was the very first thing I ever saw on screen that not just scared me but terrified me and it's kind of hard to believe now when you look back on a lot of those old stories. But but as a kid, they they absolutely almost traumatised me. But into but in the sense that I wanted to go back for more each time, you know. Yeah. Um, and so that's always been the thing for me. It's and it's always the dark, creepy stuff that I am always drawn to in Doctor Who. If there's ever a kind of a a ghost story type Doctor Who story, some things like Ghost Light and um, oh god, what was the one with Matt Smith? Was it Hyde? Uh, yes. By Neil Cross, yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, things like that. I, I just love stuff. I'm a sucker for stuff like that. Far more than the big space opera stuff, which I love. I, I mean, I, I love that as, as well. But, but you know, if there's, if there's ever a really creepy story, then I'm, I'm just kind of rubbing my hands, yeah. Absolutely, as well you should. I mean, I imagine that it would have been quite difficult when you're doing the scenes with the Doctor and Donna and the Doctor and Donna and having to differentiate <laughs> and sort of you know which ones are the real one, but getting that across in print, sort of, because obviously on yeah. screen it was difficult to work out, and I think we were pretty much all fooled. So how difficult is that for you as a writer to try and sort of convince uh, that every single one is the real one? Yeah, again, you're just following the script, really. So there's, there's scenes, obviously, where you don't know, when there's four of them in the room and you don't know which one's which. So in that sense, you're just 
playing them as the you know as you the doctor and donna each time two lots of doctor and donna and you don't kind of differentiate between them um i think later on when it's obvious i think i can't remember did i do i call, have you read the book i can't remember kenny but I have. yeah do i call them the the doctor copy and the donna copy or something yes. I can't yeah, yeah i can't yeah. remember exactly but yes there's a differentiation there yeah so there's differentiation there um so that was the only way i could do it i just really literally you just have to go by russell's script that's that's it each time it wasn't a problem i didn't find it at all difficult or awkward to do um because the script is so clear anyway i think it's just quite easy to you know to do it so how tough an assignment was it you know compared to you know ones you've done previously when you've written your own original doctor Who novels did you feel an additional pressure given that you're you're doing a russell t davis script you're doing one of the doctor's 60th anniversary specials and yeah. above all no pressure on you yourself but you're doing a target book yeah yeah no it wasn't a pressure it was an absolute dream it's much easier i mean it's much easier doing a novelization than doing my own stuff because i'm not having to come up with all the dialogue and all that kind of stuff you know um so it no it was it was a joy an absolute joy and i just ch- kind of channeled my inner inner terence or my inner dicks if you like um <laughs> we won't say that we'll call it the inner terence yeah uh, and um yeah i just i just i just just wanted it to be as as enjoyable as the old targets that I used to read as a kid, and I wanted to have that because uh, you know Terence Sticks has had this kind of lovely clarity to his writing, so you could visualise it all immediately, and that's why I wanted. I didn't want any you know fancy, ambiguous kind of writing. I just wanted it to be very, very clear, very straightforward, very punchy, uh, and and that's dictated a little bit by the word count and things like that. Anyway, you know, you just have to basically tell the story. So yeah, it was it was a it was an absolute joy to write. To be honest, it definitely comes across that way because I suppose that's the thing that you know, pretty much anyone of sort of our generation of classic series fan, those target books they were our DVDs, they were our iPlayer, they were everything. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. To have your name on one is quite. Good. I mean, I imagine that um, members of your family would be delighted, particularly those who've uh, known you since you were small to actually have this book with your name on it and that Target logo. They do, yeah. It's a strange thing there because you have to explain why it's special to people. Because, you know, I've, I've got friends who've, uh, who like Doctor Who, but they're not... I've got a lot of friends who kind of watch it casually, but they, they're not huge fans. And they can't quite understand why it's almost more exciting to write a Target book than it is to write my own stuff. You know, to, to write my own Doctor Who books, they they were saying, but you know, the, you've written your own Doctor Who books, you've created your own monsters and and all that kind of thing, but you're just writing somebody else's story here. So why is this so special? And you just have to explain that whole thing about you know buying the first book when I was eleven, you know, reading them through my childhood, all that kind of thing, and how how kind of special it is. I think unless you're unless you're one of those people who grew up reading them, you kind of can't really understand how incredibly special it is to write one to be part of the the range were there any particular scenes that caused you problems that were a little bit more difficult to, to translate because it is a very visual story particularly when you've got the giant doctor and donna lolloping for want of a word after yeah, yeah. the pair of them not really i mean chase scenes are harder than than just sort of dialogue scenes people walking about because they have to be fast and there's usually a lot going on and a lot going on quickly 
So the thing to do in that is not to get bogged down with all the different kind of directions and movements and things that people are making, because if you do that, it can make it seem very slow. So you do have to kind of get all that across in a very, very, you know, and, and emphasize how quick how quickly it's happening. But I mean, I've done that quite a lot in the past, so it wasn't it wasn't a huge problem or anything. I think the main things were things like when the when the walls kind of flip about and Doc and the Doctor and Donna get flipped around and they get they end up in different corridors and things. Sort of working out the structure of the ship and how they end up back in certain places. I think I just had to insert little bits and bobs in there just to uh, you know just an explanation. Or, or, or Donna just suddenly being surprised that she's ended up back in this room or whatever it might be. So, because you don't get a great sense of that in the in the story, in the TV story, you just kind of accept it and you just go with it. Whereas I think in a book, people might kind of reflect a bit more on how how did they get there? They've just run all the way down a corridor, and then they've gone into a you know into a tunnel, wandered around a bit, and then they're back in this room that that's at the other end. And you know, so you kind of have to work out things like that. And it did. It did kind of make sense, but but I don't think it's something you think about when you're watching the TV. It's something you maybe think about more when you're reading the book and you've got more time to take it all in. I'd imagine that in the run-up to transmission, you must have had a wee laugh or two to yourself when all the rumours were going around. For example, it's got Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi playing evil doctors trying to tempt Tennant. Yes, it was great. It was great reading all the theories, but it's also it's and, and I can see I can understand why Russell made the comment about it, but because saying that it was maybe a slight mistake to keep it quite so secret, because people then do start to really kind of wonder what's going to happen in it, and they think oh it's going to have the Rani and it, it's going to have this and it, it's going to have all these returning things, and then of course it's just a straightforward story with only the Doctor and Donna in it, and and. You know, I'm sure that inevitably, however good the story was, there are inevitably going to be some fans who are who are going to get to the end of it and think, "Oh, is that all it was? Why was it all so secret then?" You know, and I can understand that. So, uh, but no, it was it was interesting, and there was there were a couple of theories I read where they almost kind of got the gist of it. There was one where, yeah, there was one where somebody said something about the Doctor and Donna are going to face. Oh, they're going to, oh, they're, they're going to face a shapeshift. Yeah, they're going to face some kind of shapeshifting creature, but they they thought that it was going to change into things that were in their minds. So we were going to see a lot of returning monsters and characters and things, you know, that was that were uh, rather than just the Doctor and Donna, just the evil versions of the Doctor and Donna. So yeah, did you enjoy the finished version in TV? Was it different from what you, even though you'd seen it, but to yeah, actually yeah. see it, it must have been quite impressive. It was great, yeah. It was. It was lovely to see it in the it, it finished, and we had a little party as well. So we had friends around to watch it um, because they knew it was my episode, if you like. <laughs> Although it's not really my episode, obviously, but Russell Who, Russell Who, indeed, yes. So yeah, we had friends around to see it, and uh, and they all really loved, really loved it, really enjoyed it. And it, and I got the usual. God, how how did you manage to how did you manage to novelise this? How did you get this across? How did you do that? Yeah, <laughs> well, but I, I was I was thinking actually when I was watching the giggle, I was thinking, oh gosh, I'm glad I didn't have to novelise that Spice Girls sequence. <laughs> I'm really interested to see how James does that in the novel because how the how do you do that? Yeah, but all in all, Mark, an enjoyable experience for you. Absolutely, yeah, it was, a, it was an absolute joy. I would do it again in a in a heartbeat. 
fingers crossed that you get to do it. I'm not asking you that question if you've been asked to do more. I, I, have, I haven't. I mean, I, I know there's been there's been nothing else since. I've told Steve obviously I'd be up for more, and Steve has said yes, I'd love to work with you again. But obviously, all the directives come from from Russell and, and Cardiff, so uh, you know we have to wait for them. Yeah. I'm just giving you the evil eye. I'm not the evil eye. I'm just. I'm just looking to. No, your face didn't flinch. No, I think you're telling the truth. Oh, I'm telling the truth. All right. This is uh, Detective Inspector Smith letting you, <laughs> Mr. Mark Morris, return to civvy life. Thank you. <laughs> Lovely to speak to you again. And you, Mark. Cheers. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thank you, Mark. Great fun as ever to have a catch up with him. And let's carry on the chat and have a quick word with the man who created the glorious cover, Anthony Dry. So I'm Anthony Dry and I I was the illustrator for the latest Target Doctor Who books. We've got Wild Blue Yonder and again another good selection of images with Donna pretty much front and centre for this one. So that was the last one to be done. So that that one went right up to the deadline. So that one didn't get delivered, I don't think, till late October. And one of the reasons why that took so long to do was that I couldn't... Every idea that I came up with, I, I was not allowed to use because it was just too... or In their eyes, too spoilery. Too spoilerific. Um, so originally, because originally they briefed me over the phone that they wouldn't send me an email to tell me what the episode was about. So I had to talk to them on the phone or on a call. And they told me it was about vampires. Or it was like kind of vampire. They were like they were like the these doppelgangers were like vampires. And I was I, I was on the understanding that there was a lot of different doppelgangers of the Doctor and Donna on a ship trying to get the real Doctor and Donna. And so I come up with loads of different ideas and little mini sketches and things. And each one of them just got knocked back every single time. And I think it was probably September where I just said, well, I'm just going to have to put my cloth in and just do something really generic. And so originally I had Tenant on one side and Tenant on the other side kind of looking across at each other with Donna in the middle. And um, and even that was considered too much. And so I just had to drop in the picture of them driving the um, driving the vehicle. Which, funnily enough, still does the same thing because it's got you've got two pairs of the actors on the cover, which is what was in the episode. Because you got two in the car, and then you got the one in, you got Donna in the middle and the Doctor on the left. So subtly, it was there, if not you know, if not spelled out to you on the cover. So that was the more general, more general cover of the lot. I want I would like to have done something a bit more horror based because Mark Morris is a great horror writer and I've, I've talked to him a few times he did some really good but he did Deep Blue which was a great book Peter Davison I don't know if you've ever read that one Fifth Doctor oh yes oh yes that's a, that's a great book and so um, yeah I was looking forward to him doing that so yeah I, I, I dropped him a message I said you know I, I hope you don't feel too you know disappointed with the cover because it, it it's not that it's a bad cover it's just that there's for me, it's not a lot of action in there, and I like to put a lot of action in the covers. But he was like, he was made up. He was like, that was fine. It's great. They like it. So that was the last one to be done. Yeah, 
because I suppose now, like having seen the episodes, I mean, there's so much sort of great imagery in there, like the big hands, the giant Doctor and Donna. So I suppose, yeah. with, with hindsight, that would be a great thing to be able to do great images to potentially work with. But in the end, it wasn't to be. Yeah, I, I wanted that the, the original version of the cover was um, the Doctor and Donna in the middle, kind of one look on left, one look on right, look on fearful scared and then kind of like fractured image around the outside of different bits of the Doctor and Donna but showing like the, the nasty teeth and things like that and you know just hints so you know almost like a mirror shattered mirror of, you can see pieces of them with the, the teeth kind of around them and then them two in the middle that was that was something I was planning on doing but um but alas, it never happened. So, oh. so that was that. <laughs> yeah. And that's been brilliant. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you taking the time. No worries, mate. Many thanks to Ant and, of course, to Steve and Mark as well. And if you haven't got it already, you can get Doctor Who Wild Blue Yonder by Mark Morris, published by BBC Books under the Target imprint for nine ninety nine in the UK. in American dollars and $19.99 in Canadian dollars and I'm sure you'll be able to get it in Australia and many other territories across the world. And you can find out more at www.penguin.co.uk or if you want to find them on Twitter, they're at Doctor Who BBC Books, that's DR Who. Shudder. Dr Who. I hate that almost as much as I hate the word Whovians. Anyway, enough of that. That's us. That's all we've got time for today. And I think that we should go for a song to play us out with that seems appropriate given the title of the story and the colour of the cover. Why don't we go for Blue from Eiffel 65. Until next time, we'll see you again then. Bye-bye. Y'all listen up, here's the story about a little guy that lives in a blue world. And all day and all night and everything he sees is just blue like him. Inside and outside blew his house with a blue little window and a blue corvette And everything is blue for him and himself and everybody around Cause he ain't got nobody to listen, to listen, to listen, to listen. I'm blue, I've been